everyone. This is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. people really appreciate our stories like you and I do. Do you? I don't know. <laughs> I, I would like to hear stories that other people do about their, you know, if you're really into the group or whoever's doing it, I want to know about them. We need to know about our listeners. Well, that too. What were you saying? People need to know about us. People do know about us. We have our crazy stories. We, or at least I have oh, my I stories. That's the story you thought you were talking about that you thought maybe people didn't appreciate. Are you talking about like a listener's episode? What's a listener's episode? <laughs> nope. You're not talking about a listener's episode. You I'm might tell- be a little too close because I'm hearing. Le- okay. Talk now. Hello. Hi, everybody. This is Deb. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> okay. But the sound sounds good. Okay. Yeah. And you do too. So then you'll say, Beth, can you hear me? I'm going to say, Deb, can you hear me? And then we both go, woo, woo. It's too late. We already had our small talk. Oh, for goodness sakes. You're such a rat. We'll have to do that the next time. (laughs) Okay. Anything going on with you? Not really. It's just kind of a lull time of month, I guess. So are we ready to talk about our story today? I think so. We can rock and roll. Okay, let's do it. So today I am going to talk about Charles Albright. Charles was born on August 10th, 1933 in Amarillo, Texas, and was adopted by Dell and Fred Albright when he was three days old. Fred was a local grocer and they grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. Charles fit in nicely with his new family and he always had lots of friends who looked up to him and found him to be quite entertaining. Growing up, Dell told Charles two varying stories of his birth mother. The first story was that Charles' birth mother was 16 years old, who had a promising law career ahead of her, but secretly married her sweetheart and became pregnant. When her dad eventually found this out, her father did not take this news very well and demanded that she get her marriage annulled and give the baby up for adoption. The second story that Dell provided Charles was that his birth mother was a prostitute and gave him up for adoption. But neither of these cases were true. It turns out that she was actually a nurse working in the professional field. Charles' mother, Dell, seemed to have a phobia against germs and was known to change Charles' clothes up to three times a day because at the time she feared that he would catch the polio virus. Any ideas on how you actually catch the polio virus? Is it airborne? I don't know. She would often take him to the hospital to show him people being treated for polio in an iron lung. Do you know anything about the iron lung? No, but I've seen pictures of people in it. It was all encased where they were lying. So Dell also encouraged Charles to follow the fine arts and made sure that he practiced piano for 30 minutes a day before school. Does that bring back memories, Beth? Yes. Did you like my piano practicing after school? 
Yes, I didn't mind them at all. In fact, I tried to get you and Kathy to play the piano while I played the violin. That was a passion of mine to do, but uh, neither of you accommodated my wants. I'm sorry, because I don't remember that. But if I had, no, I really didn't like piano. I'm going to admit it. I didn't like it. I had to practice for 30 minutes a day, and I was always counting down that time. Plus, Kathy was always better than me. All right, so Dell also helped Charles with his reading, writing, and arithmetic, which actually allowed him to skip two grades in elementary school. She taught him proper manners and always expected him to be polite, especially towards women. So occasionally, Charles' mom would dress him up in girls' clothing and let him play with dolls. And it was usually when his aunt came to visit. I wonder if his dad knew about this, specifically because it was when the aunt came to visit. So I'm assuming that dad was at work during the day when auntie came to visit. Yeah, I think so. Well, when Charles reached his teenage years, Dell also chaperoned him on his dates. He would even call parents to let them know that Charles would be on his best behavior during those dates. Did you ever have any chaperones when you were dating, Beth? No, but when I was dating, we used to bring you and Kathy along just because we are a loving family and wanted to be one big group. I do remember that. And I always appreciate that. That was going to be one of my stories, doggone it, when you dropped. I was going to talk about how you used to take me on your dates because we had fun. We did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on the flip note, Charles' mom also had a dark side. When Charles was less than one year old, she caught him chewing on a tape measure. So she thought it would be a good idea to sit him in a dark room for an undisclosed period of time. What do we know about kids who are less than a year old? They don't know right from wrong. And they're teething. Right. Poor kid. I don't, putting him in a dark room. Mm -hmm. When he didn't nap, Charles' mother would end up tying him to the bed. She would also spank him when he did not drink his milk. When Charles was 11, his mother caught him killing small animals and practicing dissection, skinning, and stuffing dead birds. I think she gave him a little shotgun when he was a small child. And so he would be out there killing the animals, but he was also dissecting them at the same time. So, but he's 11 years old. Isn't that around the time when you really start to be inquisitive about life and, you know, you get out of the oblivious stage of child years? Sure is. She thought that a hobby would be nice and invested in a mail order taxidermy course because Dale thought that this would help him to perfect his craft as an artist. She told him, you will learn an art that is secondary only to painting and sculpting. A true taxidermist must be an artist. Beth, have you ever been to a museum before and seen how animals are stuffed? Yes. What do you think? I don't really care for that anymore. Do you find it to be intriguing though when you were growing up? Yes. While I was growing up, it was very intriguing. Yeah. So I don't think really that there is anything unusual. I think it's kind of unusual that she would invest in a mail order taxidermy course. But if you're entertaining a child in their interests, I don't see anything different or wrong with that. They would go scout for dead animals on the roads, but but mostly on birds that they would find and practice taxidermy on them. Charles' mom taught him how to use a knife and cut his skull open. 
a spoon to scoop out the brains, and forceps to pull out the eyes. That look on your face is hilarious, Beth. Well, egads. Okay, what's my thoughts here? Um, how in the world does mother know how to cut open a skull and spoon out a brain and pull out eyes with forceps? How does this mother know this? Did she take the taxidermy course before her son? That would be a good question because contrary to the way she was raising him when he was younger, this seems unnatural yeah absolutely she was teaching him manners yes and, and all of a sudden she's entertaining this i would call it an odd hobby of sorts but not necessarily again i mean we've talked enough about people who are interested in the sciences and maybe she was trying to groom charles into growing into a being a doctor when he grew up who knows well charles would spend hours stuffing and mounting the birds to make them look as lifelike as possible he is especially love going to the local taxidermist and looking through the boxes of glorious fake eyes because of the iridescent gleam that they gave off. So he's, you know, going into his local store and probably has a good relationship with the local taxidermist. And the problem here, though, is that Dell would never allow Charles to purchase any of the eyes from the taxidermy, saying that they were too expensive. Instead, she would sew buttons into where the eyes should be. He did a really good job of putting together these stuffed birds and then one missing component would be the eyes. Now, I will say I went on vacation recently and went into a museum where I did see some birds that were stuffed. It was an eagle and it kind of made me sad because eagles think that they have been taken off of the just the endangered list but still to see an eagle stuffed but it was beautiful gorgeous and it really was very lifelike whoever did the taxidermy on that they certainly do have an artistic technique what are your thoughts on sewing buttons in place of eyes kind of weird maybe she's doing it so they can't see yeah so if they had eyes then she would think maybe they were watching yes okay i get it well, in his teenage years, Charles did run into some trouble and was arrested when he was around the age of 13 for petty theft and aggravated assault, likely as a result of his overprotective, thrifty, and doting mother. Charles broke into churches and a local store to steal a watch, spent several months in prison, and then was eventually released and placed on probation. Charles' probation officer, who was also studying psychology, said that Charles could divorce reality sufficiently from his value system so that he could tell you something false at the same time as actually believing what he just said was telling the truth. Well, when Charles graduated high school at the age of 15, remember that he skipped two grades in elementary school. His parents bought him some property, probably as a graduation gift, which Charles turned over and sold for more land. I was thinking about this when I was doing this research. If his parents bought him the property, I wonder if he got their permission to turn that over because he's already thinking like an entrepreneur and some of our episodes in the past are talking about entrepreneurial minds. And I think it's pretty ingenious that he was only 15 years old already yes. thinking about flipping land, you know? Sounds like a genius in the making. Mm -hmm. Well, he was so successful when he was graduating high school that a Dallas Times Herald 
published a story on him called The World's Youngest Real Estate Man Amassing Nest Egg for College. Yeah, before he even went out to college, he was already flipping property. Yes. During his college years, Charles originally rolled in at North Texas State College in Denton, but was arrested during his freshman year for being a part of a small burglary ring that broke into local businesses and stole hundreds of dollars of merchandise. Charles and his theft ring buddies spent a year in prison for petty theft. And before he was sentenced, his mother, being ever the overprotective one, came back, went before the judge, and attempted to serve his time in his place. She was denied. If one of your kids ran into legal trouble, would you go to the courts and ask them to do their time for them? No. No, not every good mother would do that. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I always told my kids, I was a single mother when they were small. I kind of had to be mom and dad at the same time. So my big thing was, if you ever call me to bail you out of jail. I promise you, you will stay there until your court date. I can't afford to bail you out. And guess what? My kids were in the straight and narrow. Well, in the early 50s and 60s, Charles enrolled in Arkansas State Teachers College in Conway, Arkansas, and then he turned into a well-educated friendly and successful adult, or so it seemed. He was described by his friends as being happy, fluent in French and Spanish, and quite talented as a painter and a pianist. I just don't get it because I already told you I did my piano lessons when I was little and there was nothing easy about playing the piano to me. I just didn't have that natural talent. Well, it was like me with the violin. I struggled. I played it from grade four to 12 and was in the high school orchestra, but I had to do double the amount of work that others had to do because it didn't come naturally to me. I always loved listening to you play the violin. And believe it or not, this was going to be one of my other stories. I loved going to your concerts. Did you? Loved it because I really love music. So I think that was part of it. That's sweet. Ah, looking up to my big sister. Hmm, thanks. Yeah, no problem. Well, Charles was also the president of his French club. He was the business manager of the yearbook and a member of the school choir. Speaking of music, not only that, but he had talent as far as athletics because he was also the halfback of the football team. No idea what a halfback is. If somebody wants to email me and tell me, I would love to know. Well, he's sounding like a well-rounded young gentleman. Yeah, it sounds like he had a pretty decent upbringing. At least he knew all of society's expectations. However, on the dark side, he was also known to break into buildings of his college and steal food from the refrigerator so he could cook steaks for his friends. What a nice guy. He broke into the physics professor's office and stole a test in the middle of the day while his professor was teaching his classes, he made copies of it and returned it to its proper spot before the professor ever found out what he was doing. So he basically made copies of it and passed it out so that everybody got a good grade on the final exam. He also broke into his school's office and forged his report cards to show that he was making all A's because he did not want to have to report to his parents that he was in fact failing and he really didn't want his mother to find out. The reason behind his failing these classes is that he said he was just too bored to study. I'm saying when I was in college, I probably failed a class or two for other reasons. Sleeping in. No, I just wasn't good at geology. (sighs) 
Doggone it, I could not pass that geology class to save my life. All right, so there was another time that Charles' roommate broke up with his girlfriend. So Charles proceeded to take all of the pictures of his roommate's ex and cut out her eyeballs in every last one of the photos before throwing the pictures away. That's unusual. Well, when Charles' roommate began dating someone else, I don't know, he was looking at a picture one day and he was starting to take a little bit closer of a look and he discovered that Charles had pasted his old girlfriend's eyes onto the picture of his new girlfriend. That strikes me as something that he's telling his friend that the old girlfriend is watching him. Wow, Beth, you always have these really profound statements when I'm thinking something completely different. I'm thinking to myself, what does it take for you to think about looking at a photograph and how small somebody's eyes are? He had to have gotten something like an X-Acto knife and tweezers and very intricately cut those out and then paste them very carefully onto a new photo. Yes, most but- definitely. Yeah, but I like your idea of his old girlfriend watching because, you know, when we break up with people, we don't always let that person go, do we? No. So Charles also took the little eyeballs from all the photos and pasted them up on the walls around his frat house. He was considered to be the class clown, so his frat brothers did not think anything of it. They actually found it pretty funny and considered it to be just one of Charles' pranks. What do you think of him wallpapering the walls with eyeballs, Beth? Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's really freakish. Walking in after class and just seeing a bunch of eyeballs all over the wall. I can't even imagine. It's not a room I'd be comfortable sitting in. No, I think I would probably be taking those down. (laughs) Yes. In the 1970s, Charles eventually tried to get into medical school to become a surgeon, but was not accepted. So he just basically went on with life and married his college sweetheart, Betty Hester, and moved to Arkansas to become a teacher until the school. Yep. You said Arkansas? It says Arkansas. Yes. Here in America, we pronounce that Arkansas. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) My face is red. Okay. Did I keep that in there? Hmm? Did I keep it in? I don't know. You decide at the time. (laughs) Okay. So Charles eventually tried to get into medical school to become a surgeon, but was not accepted. So he basically went on with his life and married his college sweetheart, Betty Hester, and moved to Arkansas to become a teacher until the school district that he worked for discovered that Charles had lied about earning a college degree. I dated somebody who really puffed up his resume. And I'm going to say about 10 years ago, just about every company that I know is starting to request transcripts, request to see the physical diploma that you have earned. I don't know if they do that in Canada these days, Beth, do they? I have not applied for a job in a long time. I've been in the same place for the last 20 years. When I was working at one of my jobs, I was in the middle of that job when they asked me for my college diploma. Really? Mm -hmm. Well, Charles was dismissed from his job and spent time in prison and placed on probation due to being charged with fraud. So 
he was basically teaching without a license. Well, he may have gotten a license, but it was forged. He and his wife moved back to Dallas, Texas, where he went on to working just basically jobs here and there, anything that he could get. He did work as a designer for an aircraft company, an illustrator for a patent company, a carpenter, and a baseball bat maker. He's got a couple neat little things on his, under his belt that he didn't need a college degree for. He sounds like H.H. Holmes and all those multiple careers. I was thinking the same thing, of a lot of parallel activities and or behaviors. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So after what Charles described as a loveless marriage, he and Betty ended up getting a divorce in 1974, and he went on to become a hairstylist. One of Charles' customers discovered that he had a knack for painting, probably through conversation. Do you have good conversations with your hairstylist? Get yes. your hair done? Yeah. So you would sort of form a pretty good relationship with your hairstylist because they get to know you over time, right? Right. Well, Charles' customer commissioned him to paint a portrait of his wife for a birthday present for her. Charles accepted the job, but took weeks to complete the portrait. Now, Beth, I know you are an artist. So what is a reasonable time frame, do you think, to paint something? Well, it depends on how big it is. If he's working, you know, it could be anywhere between a week and a month. Okay, so he did take a couple weeks. And um, I will say that he was making a six foot by three foot portrait. So wouldn't that take a couple weeks? Yes, I envisioned something with the eyes coming. (laughs) Why, yes, let me let me move on and I will get there to tell you that. So he took a couple weeks to complete the portrait and his customer was getting a little tired of waiting. So he did stop by Charles' house to check on the progress. And what he did discover was the large portrait of six by three feet, like I mentioned, and it actually looked strikingly like his wife. So he was very pleased with the outcome and he liked how realistic it was. The woman's entire physique was complete, everything except for the eyes. When Charles' customer asked him if he would be painting them, Charles responded by saying, "Hmm, when I'm ready to. And it took him several months more to finish the eyes. So I imagine he's just walking by that picture picture day after day, just looking at it. Now, I too have tinkered in painting. And all I can say is an artist knows when they're done. Would you agree? Yes. I'm not sure why he did everything up until that point. But unless you're an artist, you just know when you're done. So if it's not done, it will sit there until you're ready to take a paintbrush to it, I suppose. Right. Now we're going to move on to talk about some murder victims that were discovered in the Dallas, Texas area where Charles was residing. I'm going to go back a little bit in his childhood where his mother had told him a couple different versions on his birth mother. Remember that at the beginning of this? Yes. Charles did not believe that his birth mother was an aspiring lawyer, but rather thought that she was a prostitute which led him to begin preying on prostitutes after his adoptive mother, Dell, passed away. The first victim was discovered on December 13, 1990. Mary Lou Pratt, a veteran sex worker in her early 30s, was found in a lower class area just south of Dallas, Texas. She was wearing only a t-shirt and bra and was naked from the waist down. Mary was badly beaten, her eyes were shut, and she had a gunshot wound to the head by a 40 
44 caliber shotgun. Police did not really look into this murder because it was common for sex workers in the area to be beaten by their pimps or run into a bad John, but murders in the area were quite unusual. It did appear, however, that Mary had been killed elsewhere and someone had dumped her body in the area where it was found. Now, Mary was sent for an autopsy to see if they could at least find out what her cause of death was. Even though she was badly bruised, when the pathologist went to inspect her eyes, they discovered that Mary's eyes had been expertly removed and there was no surrounding tissue damage. Whoever did this bath they basically took time to strategically remove, almost like a surgeon, to remove those eyes from their sockets. The removal of Mary's eyes were so perfectly executed that her upper and lower eyelids remained intact and undisturbed. So if you envision somebody whose eyes are closed, that's just part of the facial makeup. Well, whoever did this didn't disturb that facial construction of a human being looking like they're sleeping. According to the coroner, whoever did this knew how to cut six major muscles that held each eye socket into place, along with the optical nerve, which was considered to be rope tough. So imagine how long that would have taken. I would think it would be an hour's but if it is an expert, then it could be done fairly quickly. Well, because of this unusual discovery, investigators contacted the Federal Bureau of Investigations, also known as the FBI, Violent Crime Apprehension Program Unit, which entered Mary's condition into their federal database. Now, during this search, nothing came up of any similar crimes. So we basically have a mystery on our hands as far as who might have done this because this is the first case ever documented. Now, the second victim was found on February 10th of 1991. This time, 27-year-old Susan Peterson was discovered deceased on the same South Dallas road, except at the other end of the road from where Mary Pratt was found. This made Susan's case fall under a different jurisdiction. Susan was autopsied by a different pathologist who came up with the same results as Mary. Susan was the same MO as Mary. Mary. She was found nearly naked. She was a local sex worker. Susan was also beaten, shot in the head, chest, and stomach, and her eyes were also meticulously removed with no tissue damage. Police from both Mary's and Susan's jurisdictions began working on the case together and treated it like the same killer conducted both crimes. They agreed not to bring too much attention to the two victims because they did not want to scare the person off who was committing these crimes or cause him to change his killing patterns. They did, however, tell the public that they believed the killer was well known by the sex workers because of the ease of choosing his victims. You know, I'm sure that they are on their guard while they're at work, but going with their gut feeling. Police put flyers out around town warning sex workers to take caution and to use their judgment when they were getting in the car with somebody. Without providing specific details, they set up a tip line for people to call in. The police set up a sting operation using undercover agents as decoys and took note of all the license plates in the area where they knew the sex workers to be working. At some point in time, the police decided that they also needed to tell the community about the murder 
numbers, but they did not disclose information about the missing eyes. You know, they always keep one or two things out of the news, right? Right. And that seemed to be a pretty major one. Absolutely. Sure. Now, news did get out to the media that the women's faces had been strangely mutilated, which immediately drew national attention to the case because, you know, media frenzy. All of a sudden, they're dubbing the killer as the Dallas Ripper. And at the time, they did not know who it was. Now, shortly after, a third victim was found. And this was Shirley Williams, who was in her early to mid 40s. Now, I'm not sure exactly of her age, because from all the articles that I could find, there was a conflict in the age reporting. But she was discovered on March 19, 1991, by a local elementary school. And unfortunately, too, she was discovered by elementary school kids. That's pretty horrifying. It reminds me of one of my uh, books I read on Tammy from Tammy Hogue. The same thing happened. The kids came upon a dead body. Wow. Well, Shirley was also a local sex worker, but did not work in the same area that Mary Pratt and Susan Peterson had. This tipped police off that the killer had indeed changed his killing location, likely due to the fact that what was being reported on the news at this point in time, right? Because they're already saying, things on the news. They're giving information to the news media to just to warn people. And of course, you know, public relations, you want to know that you're living in a safe community. Yes. Well, Charles decided to attack an African-American woman just to throw the police off of his trail course, you know, switching things up as far as the killing pattern. And since many criminals tend to choose their victims from the same race, that's when he decided to attack Shirley because Mary and Susan were both Caucasian. When Shirley was found, she was covered in bruises, had a broken nose, and also died of a gunshot wound to the top and the back of her head. What police found at this killing site was pretty much what did Charles Albright in. They discovered the tip of an X-Acto knife that was used to surgically remove Shirley's eyes. So this kind of goes back to the first two killings. He must have meticulously removed the eyes. Would he have removed the eyes where he shot the victims? That's a very good point because they would be in the open. Yeah, and especially at an elementary school. Right. Because, you know, when I was talking about how the pathologist said that the nerve was rope tough, if he was doing that on site at an elementary school, he was bold. Very much so. Well, after Shirley Williams' killing, many of the sex workers basically had enough and they just left the city, except for one woman named Brenda White. She actually decided that she was going to stick around and refused to leave. And one night when Brenda was working, a white station wagon pulled up to her. She got in the vehicle and told the driver what motel that they should drive to. But the driver said that he had his own private place that he preferred to use. And this, of course, raised Brenda's alarm bells. Quick thinking, Brenda sprayed the driver in the face with mace and jumped out of the car and got out of Dodge. Brenda immediately went to the police and told them everything that just happened. Like the driver screaming at her that she would be next and that he would kill 
all of the sex workers around town. Another sex worker, Veronica Rodriguez, also told the police earlier that she had been picked up by a John and was also attacked. She said after the attack, she ran to someone's house close by that she knew, and the John matched the exact description that the person Brenda White had reported. Now we've got two sex workers in the area describing the same person who attacked two people. And a few days later, police patrol the area that Veronica was known to frequent came across her sitting on a vehicle with a balding middle-aged man whose name was Axton Schindler. Veronica said that this was the man whose house she ran to when she was being attacked and he was the one that saved her. As they continued on with the investigation, police pretty much discovered that Axton Schindler was somewhat paranoid but rather harmless they quickly ruled him out from being a suspect. Axton was also renting property owned by Fred Albright, who happened to be the deceased father of Charles Albright. And one of the police who was manning the tip line received an anonymous call to say that she was friends with Mary Pratt the first victim, who had introduced her to a new boyfriend. This boyfriend had very good manners. He was exceptionally polite, but had a weird fascination with eyes. She also found at his house, I guess she went to go visit his house, and she also found a box of, of knife blades. Charles Albright's pictures were shown to Brenda White and Veronica Rodriguez, who both positively identified him as their attacker. So on March 22nd, 1991, at 2.30 a.m., the SWAT team surrounded Charles Albright's house, entered, and arrested him for the murder of Mary Pratt, Susan Peterson, and Shirley Williams. It's about time that he got caught. I think it was pretty ingenious of that lady to step forward and say, hey, just like another one of our cases we talked about where somebody went with their gut. Yeah, I think she was very brave to do that, especially with that line of work. It's, you know, already dangerous, but I'm glad the community seemed to be looking out for each other. That's really, really yes. good. Now, the case against Charles Albright was circumstantial and he was eventually found guilty on only Shirley Williams' death because he had left the evidence behind. All the other cases were circumstantial. He did receive a life sentence without the possibility of parole and is now serving out his term at John Moonford Psychiatric Unit in Lubbock, Texas. Until his death on October 22nd of 2020, Charles Albright denied ever cutting out anybody's eyeballs and insisted that the police did this themselves to inflate their case. He was 87 years old. The end. The end. Anything to add? Not on that story. I have a teachable moment. I have one this week. Yeah, I love it. I can't wait. Well, to keep this short, I lived downtown. And when I went out to my car across the street in a parking lot, there was a young gentleman sitting there and he looked lost. So I asked him if he was okay. And he says his car wasn't working and needed to be jumped. My gut said, don't help. You know all those shows and books you read and watch. I walked away from him and proceeded to head to work. And then I went back to him and said, what can I do? Do you want me to help jump your car? And he did. All the while, I was as nervous as heck. When that was done, I promised myself I'll always go with my gut and I will never do something like that again. I feel very lucky. What are the odds at five in the morning downtown, somebody sitting there is 
not a murderer. Well, I'm glad that you didn't get murdered that day, Beth, because it sounds pretty fishy. And yeah, it's, I mean, you have to go with your gut. There's that internal instinct in all of us. And we've talked about that before, you know, with the online dating or even meeting somebody for the first time. I had no idea that had happened. And I am so glad that you were able to at least tell the tale, but you just have to, I hate to say you can't trust anybody, but you have to be very, very mindful of the people that you are interacting with, especially if it's dark outside or something just doesn't seem right. All I kept thinking was this is a Ted Bundy story in the making. How long were you there? And how was he acting while you were jumping the car? Is he the one that actually hooked the cars up to the batteries? He didn't have cables, but I did. Okay. I don't know how to hook them up. So he went ahead and did it, but he felt that he needed to repay me. He says, I don't have anything else on me, but you can have this can of orange juice. Did you take it? No. Good, because they might have poisoned you. It wasn't opened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we have it. That is the story of Charles Albright, aka the eyeball killer. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap. We would love for you to go visit us on social media at dying to be found. That would be on Instagram. You'll look for that under the word dying, the number two, the letter B found. You can visit our website at dying to be found.com just like you see on our logo we're on facebook and twitter anything else beth that was an interesting story oh my gosh i loved it you did what did you love about it it's something i have never heard of before it was a whole new thing for me okay what else it was i guess i do like creepiness and the creepiness came in when there were the all those eyeballs were on that in that room taped up onto the wall so i kind of get what you're saying because have I talked to you about kangaroos before? No. Okay. I have a story about kangaroos. Kangaroos are cute as can be. Have you ever seen one in person? Uh, in the zoo. Were you able to touch it, get close to it? Was no. It behind a, was it behind a fence? Yes. So it was in its natural habitat. As much as a zoo can be in its natural habitat. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so we had a kangaroo farm close to where I live. And it doesn't exist there anymore. But back in the day when I was single, I went out on a date and I went to the kangaroo farm. Because you know me, I love animals. Yes. Oh gosh, what an amazing experience. We were able to get up really close. We got into one of those buggy things. It's almost like a little train. Mm -hmm. Well, we were driving around and coming up on the kangaroos. They're very social creatures and they were all amongst their little families. And I'm going to say there had to have been at least 30 kangaroos, which of course I'm mesmerized. So we're driving on this cart past a bunch of kangaroos who were doing their thing. And when they heard the cart coming, they all stopped and looked like the scarecrows that were looking at me when I was driving through that town. It was so cute. And then it got creepy. (laughs) (laughs) They just got real still like statues and looked at me. Okay. What else do we have? Anything? Speaking of kangaroos, when Al and I were just dating and I went to visit his sister in another town, it was dark and our area is known for having deer fly into the roads. This time, it was a coyote that ran across the road. And Al said, look at that kangaroo. (laughs) I looked at him and I says, what? He says, I don't know why I said that. (laughs) 
so I don't let him down. I uh, I do joke with him about that. That funny. Yeah. Look at the kangaroo. Oh, that's so cute. I love kangaroos. Yeah, we don't have any natural to the natural habitat of Canada. So did, why he thought it was a kangaroo? So. Yeah, exactly. But don't get too close because they will punch you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about kangaroos. All I know is they're cute. Okay, I think we're really done now. Okay. Oh my goodness. All right. I think that's it. Well, okay then. I think definitely that's a wrap and we will talk to you next week. Bye.